just a reminder, next week is time change, so springing forward an hour, we're losing an hour, however you want to say that, but just remember that's happening. Um, so for parents, if your kids are going to be helping us with the service next week, that adds another layer of complication, so don't forget to get them here. Um, don't show up at, you know, 10 or 11 thinking it's 10. Um, also, if you're going to be helping out, I know that some of the youth are helping with the music and reading scripture and different stuff. Um, we're just going to, we're going to have a, a quick meeting at 930 next week. So if you're going to be involved in any way, just so we know who's doing what and everybody kind of knows what their responsibilities are, um, it's going to be good. I'm excited for that. That's, it's always fun to get the kids involved. I think that helps them in the longevity of understanding what Sunday morning is about and seeing the value in it and wanting to do it into their adulthood. So, um, all right. So this morning we're dealing with, uh, I mean, you heard it, right? It's weird. It, this is hard. It's a weird passage. Many people have stumbled over this and like trying to figure it out. Um, I'll say two things in, uh, defense of trying to figure this out and trying to preach through this. Number one, one of my heroes is Charles Spurgeon, right? And you can go online. They have all of his sermons he ever preached in the however many years he was the preacher at Tabernacle in London. Not one sermon from Romans 11. He has like 5,000 sermons from Sunday morning, his Sunday evening, his midweek, whatever, all the stuff. He didn't touch the entire chapter, okay? It is a difficult chapter. It is hard to understand. There are some analogies that we're going to look at this morning. It's like, what in the world are you trying to tell us? And so the second thing I'll say is, we read this before, but let's just go back to it. Let's have our mind in this frame of mind as we're trying to understand this analogy this morning. This is also chapter 11, down in verse 33. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable are his ways. So there are many things in the Bible. There are many things that God does that he decrees that we will never understand fully. Um, I think this morning we have a beautiful analogy in front of us, and there's lots of different ways to see it, um, and I'm going to put forth to you the thing that seems the most plausible to me after studying it. Um, this doesn't mean that, that other ways of looking at it are wrong, it's just this is what I, I studied and I read and I looked at a lot of different people, and because when I read it, the first thing I thought was, wow, I don't understand it, and if I had to put my finger on it, um, my understanding of the analogy disagrees with some of the brightest and smartest guys throughout all of Christian history. So I had to d disregard or dis discard my thought because, I, I mean, I didn't know. And so all that is to say, it's complicated. We're going to do our best to understand what Paul is trying to say. But just know that I am not like, oh, I am absolutely 100% sure this is exactly what it means. This is the only thing it can mean um, because... It is confusing, and it is complicated. So, with that being said, let's look at verse 16 to start. He says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, then so are the branches. So he's giving us two analogies here. Um, one is a little clear, clearer than the others, but the idea behind them both is, if the source is holy then the things that come out of that source are also holy. So the dough um, example is probably from Numbers 15. Um, don't know, but this is what Numbers 15 says. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough you shall present a loaf 
as a contribution. Like a contribution from the threshing floor, so, ya, so shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout the generations. Excuse me. So, there's a big batch of dough, right? They're making lots of bread. They cut off a little piece. They cook that up. They give it to the Lord. That is holy. And because that is holy, all of it is. All of it is blessed because they have offered this small piece to the Lord. Now, the root and the branches is a little bit easier because the dough thing is weird because, right, part of the dough gets separated and so it, it, it doesn't make as much sense in my mind. Maybe it does in yours. But the root and the branches in the tree, that makes a whole lot more sense, right? Because if the branches, when they are connected to the tree, which is connected to the roots, then the holiness of the roots is coming up through the tree, through the branches, as long as they're still connected, that holiness of the root is then going out to the entire tree, going to the tree, going to the branches, right? So that, to me, makes a whole lot more sense in my mind, this analogy that that's what's happening. The root is holy. The source is holy. And so everything coming from it is holy. And that is the idea, I think, that Paul is trying to put forth to us. So the question is, the real question is, what does the source represent? What is the root? What is this dough that he is speaking of? Now, at first glance, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, oh, it's got to be Jesus, right? The answer is Jesus. It's always Jesus, right? You ask kids any question in Sunday school, the answer better be Jesus because that's what they're going to say. I mean, it just we're in church. The answer must be Jesus. But if the answer is Jesus, which I actually don't think it is, it creates a lot of theological issues for us in the sense that we know without a doubt that Paul has taught to us, once you are saved, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If the root is Jesus and the branches are us as individuals, there are branches being cut off, being put back in, and possibly being cut off again. That would mean that salvation is fluid. You could be saved. You could be a branch. You could be cut off from that and then probably grafted back in. And so that in and of itself is enough for me to say that I don't think that the root is Jesus and that we are the branches. I think something different is going on here. It's also important that we remember back to verse 13 where Paul says, I am speaking to you Gentiles, right? He is very, very clear that he is speaking not to just individuals, but to a group of people, to the Gentiles. So then we ask again, who is the root? Well, it says that the root is holy. It says that the lump is holy. And that word, sometimes we forget that it has a different meaning when applied to God than when it applies to things on earth. When we think about God being holy, we think about his perfection, right? But really the word holy, what does it mean? To be set apart. Abraham was holy. He wasn't perfect, but he was holy. He was set apart from all other humans to be the father of Israel. So when we think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being declared or being, be, being set apart as holy, it's not that they were sinless. It's not that they were perfect. It's that God sets them apart for something special. The nation of Israel is holy, not because they are sinless or because they are perfect, but because God sets them apart. And so when we look at the root, when we look at the dough, and it says that it's holy, it's, it's okay and it's easy to attribute the root 
to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I think that's what it is. I'm like 90% sure, right? Monday, I would have said, oh, it's Jesus. But then as I got to thinking about it, as I got to reading, as I got to studying, and as I got to reading brilliant people who understand the better Bible way better than I do, they all agreed. The root, the dough, it's Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the founding fathers, right? It's those men whom God called out, set apart to be the fathers of this nation. So, if the root represents Abraham, which I think it does, then what is the tree itself? We're trying to understand, right? Because Paul has given us an analogy, and he's trying to teach us something out of it. And so we need to understand what all the things represent the best we can. So if the root represents Abraham, then the tree itself, what does it represent? Now, some would suggest, well, then that must be the nation of Israel. But what is Paul telling us? The Gentiles are being grafted onto this tree. So if that's the nation of Israel, and the branches are individual Israelites or groups of Israelites, that would mean the Gentiles have to become Israelites. Well, Paul is very clear throughout his teachings that that is not a requirement to be saved. You don't have to be circumcised, right? You don't have to follow all of the Old Testament law. So I think to say that the tree is Israel is also a mistake. I think we should broaden it a little bit and say that the tree itself is the covenant people of God. Now, for a time, that was restricted to Israel. But now, in Paul's teaching, in Paul's day, that's not true. The covenant people of God can include anybody. And that's what he's trying to tell us here. All of this grafting and cutting off and Gentiles are coming in. It's the people of God. The tree, that's what I believe that it represents. Now, why would we say this? Well, because some are going to be cut off. Now, it also points out here that we, that we are all one people of God, right? So if there are people being cut off, there are people being added in, then there is no more distinction. There is the covenant people of God, and Jews and Gentiles alike are a part of that group. Right? If this is the covenant people of God, then everybody who believes can find nourishment here. Now, it's, we, we can't, uh, the thing we don't want to do is misunderstand this being salvation. Right? Abraham is not the source of our salvation. The tree and the root and this whole thing and, and all that we're seeing here is not a picture of salvation. But what does it look like to be a part of this covenant people of God? And so it means that we are all one people. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what, you, what your skin color is, what country you come from. None of it matters. God does not care about any of those things. All he cares about is, are you grafted onto the tree? Are you a part of the people of God? This also means that there has always only been one way for salvation. So what we don't see here is, there was a tree for the Old Testament... But now that didn't work, and that was the law and the righteousness and all that. But now that doesn't work. Jesus has come. God has planted a new tree, and the Gentiles are being grafted into the new tree. That's not what's happening. There is one tree. It has always been there. It has always been true that the covenant people of God, if they were going to stay attached, if they were going to be a part of that group, they had to have faith. 
It was never about following the law. It was never about self-righteousness. It was never about a list of do's and don'ts. And if you do all the good things and avoid all the bad things, then you're saved. Well, that didn't work. Now we have a new plan. It's the same tree. The Jews used to be on it. But because of their unbelief, they have been cut off. So it's always been about faith. It's never been about works. So let's think about this. Verse 17, right? But if some of the branches were broken off, and you also, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So, again, the branches are groups of people, right? This is not individuals. If this was individuals, we would need to abandon our understanding of what you call it one saved always at what priests or the, um, I forget the term, but we would have to abandon the idea that that as we are Christians, we, we can never lose that salvation, right? We would have to believe that f- salvation is fluid. But if the branches, which I believe they are, are groups of people that are being cut off, then it's easier to understand, and I think that's what Paul is saying. So Paul, Paul first gives us this warning not to be arrogant. Right? Branches have been cut off. You have been brought in. Don't be arrogant about that. Don't think that you're better than the Jews because you have been brought in. Right? He's speaking to the Gentiles again. Don't think that you're better than them because, because God has discarded them and brought you in. They were not brought in because they were better. They were brought in because they were believers. Right? Because they had belief. And they were being supported by the tree. They are being supported by the roots, by all of the things that were supporting the Jews, and they had unbelief in them. This is what is supporting them. And so he's telling them, you're not the source of the holiness. You're not the source. It's the roots. It's the tree. Now again, I think it's really, really important. I want to just stress this over and over. We, sh- we can't get mixed up in the analogy. right? Paul is not somehow saying that Christ is no longer the foundation of the church. I don't think that, I mean, I, I believe that Abraham is the root, and I don't believe that Paul is now telling us, well, Abraham is the foundation. Christ is the foundation of the church, without question. That is what the Bible teaches us. He is trying to build an argument about groups of people, an analogy about groups of people coming in to the church. So Abraham is where it begins. He is the root, not of salvation, but of the covenant people of God. The branches, they're not individuals. They are groups. They are general groups of people. So just because the Israelites are chopped off, just because their branch is is cut off, it doesn't mean that the Jews are never going to be brought back in. And it also doesn't mean that the Jews, individual Jews, who had faith in Jesus were cut off of the same tree. Paul makes that very clear at the beginning of the chapter. What does he say? His proof for the fact that God has not abandoned Israel as a whole, that there is a remnant, is that he is a Christian, that he is following the Messiah. So when he says the Jews are cut off, this is not an individual level. Every individual Jew on their own heart who believed were still a part of the people of God. We're still a part of the covenant people. We're a part of the church. He is painting wide breadth picture. The Jews as a whole did not believe, and so they are being cut off. 
Think about this in terms of modern day. Right? We are a church, we are a Baptist church. We are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. It is a group of people, a group of churches, right? Large, large group of people in churches. The warning for us in this is don't become arrogant. Don't think that, well, we're Baptists. There's no way that God would ever remove his favor from the Southern Baptist Convention. Can you imagine? Yeah, I can imagine. Have you paid attention to what the Southern Baptist Convention has been doing in the last five years? They have been dipping their toe and maybe even the whole foot into ideas of social justice, critical race theory, anti-Bible ideas. They are walking down a dangerous path. This is a warning for us as Baptists, as Christians in America. I mean, if you think about it as countries, the branch of America is definitely cut off, right? We as a whole, as a nation, do not, we, don't, we do not present that we believe in Jesus. Many people might talk about it, but no laws that are coming on. I mean, I'm not going to get political here, but like we, we are not a Christian nation. If I had to guess, we probably have been cut off. It doesn't mean that there can't be a revival amongst our nation and be brought back in. But we should never be so arrogant as to say, God will never stop blessing America. Of course he will. If we don't follow after him, of course he will. This is the message that Paul is giving to the Gentiles. Don't be arrogant. You, didn't you just see what I told you? God cut the Jews off. His chosen people for thousands of years. He just cut them off because of their unbelief. Don't think that you're better than that. Don't think that you're immune from that. Now you might think, well, I don't care about being Baptist. And I don't care about, I just, I am a Christian. And it's all, it, the Christian life is more than our individual understanding, Right? You're not going to lose your salvation if, this, if the SBC goes off the deep end. That's, what I'm, that's the thing we don't want to get confused about, right? But what does the Southern Baptist Convention do? Amazing work. It sends thousands of missionaries across the planet to go and share the gospel with millions of people. We should care whether they're walking in dangerous territory or not. Because if the source, as we're looking at here, if the source gets corrupted, the rest of it is going to be corrupted too. It's going to trickle down. If the leadership of our convention of the Baptists somehow falls into the lie of all of the things that the culture is trying to dump onto us as the church and say, your Bible is wrong, the things that we believe are right, if that infects the core, it will infect those thousands of missionaries. It will infect the millions of people who hear the gospel because of what the Southern Baptist Convention is doing. We should care. We want our convention to stay true to the gospel, to stay true to the Bible. We don't want to see the SBC cut off from this tree because of unbelief, because of walking into bad, deeply bad theology. We should care about that. We should send representatives. We should be involved in that, right? So once again, this is what I think Paul is talking about. You have the root, you have the tree, and you have the branches. And these branches are groups of people. (coughs) So the warning 
Christians, to the Gentile, to the Baptists, to Americans, to whatever, whatever group that, that claims Christianity but might be walking away from it. We need to stay true to God's word because we could just as easily be cut off as the Jews were. Now, why does he warn about arrogance? Because this is the thing. This is the reason that the Jews were cut off. It was in their arrogance that they thought that they were holy. It was in their arrogance that they said, I am better than you, Gentile, because look at all the stuff I'm doing. I don't know how else to define that attitude other than arrogance. I'm better than you because I'm doing things and you're not capable. Therefore, God loves me. He, he has declared me righteous, but not you. There is no place for arrogance in the gospel. If there is one thing that we should immediately shed when we understand the gospel, it is pride. Where does pride exist in repentance and asking God to forgive you because you are sinful and evil? I mean, it does. It can't exist there. When we go to the Lord, we're prostrate on our faith, on our face, on our knees. Right? There is no pride left. There is no arrogance left. It is probably the number one barrier to the gospel for the unbelieving world. They think they have it all figured out. They think better of themselves than they ought to. That's what pride is. When we think better of ourselves than we ought to. When we come to the reality and to the truth that we are sinful, that we have never done anything good, that we are wholly reliant upon God to do every good deed in our life, there's no arrogance in that. There's nowhere for pride. It's all God and not us. We're not capable. But in their pride, the Jews thought that they, had been, that they were self-righteous, that through their own deeds and through their own works, they were better than the Gentiles. And God finally said, I've had enough of this. He cuts them off and grafts the Gentiles in. Now this leads to a conclusion of sorts. Um, he gives us this statement. Oh, let's see, 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen me, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So God is kind to nations who are faithful. God is kind to nations or groups of people who repent and believe. And he is severe to those who fall into unbelief. Now you can replace the word nations with whatever group you want. Again, you can replace it with Southern Baptist. You can replace it with America. You can replace it. You can replace it with the town of Bayfield. I mean, it, you can replace it with anything. No group of people is safe from being cut off from God's blessing if they are racked with, plagued with unbelief. God is kind to those who believe, and He is severe to those who do not. And this analogy, I think, we can take all the way down to the individual. God is kind to each of us who believe in him, who trust in him. He gives us grace and forgiveness and love abounding beyond anything we could ever imagine. But God is severe 
to every single individual person who does not believe in him. Hell is not a party like the world would make you think it is. It is severe punishment for all eternity. Separation from God himself. And torment and burning and all of the things that the Bible describes. It is severe. It's not a slap on the wrist. It's not purgatory where you're going to have to wait a little bit and then eventually God's going to let you into heaven. For unbelief, God's punishment is severe. And on the other side, his kindness is abounding. It's overwhelming how much kindness and grace God gives to those who believe. See, God doesn't do things in half measures. He doesn't say, well, you can be in heaven, but you've got to stay like way over there. You can't, you can't come near me, but you can kind of get over there on the outskirts. And he doesn't say, well, there's a little bit of punishment for the sins. Like, it's all in. You're either fully blessed by God or the punishment is fully severe. There is a black and white issue, right? It's either this or that. There's nothing gray in the middle. You're either blessed by God or you're punished by him based off of do you believe or do you not? When you believe, God showers his blessings on you. These last couple of verses here, 23 and 24, then we get hope for Israel. He says, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree <coughs> and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Paul makes a very clear statement, right? Israel will be brought back in if they don't continue in their unbelief. The thing that got them cut off was their own self-righteousness, their own pursuit of righteousness through works. Notice what will bring them back. It's not a work. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. You don't have to dress up a certain way, wash your hands a certain way. All of the things that the Jews were concerned with, stop not believing. Stop being in unbelief. And the minute that you, Israel, are not in unbelief, the minute that you believe in the Messiah, you're grafted back in. That's all that is required. That's all that Paul is telling them. It's simple. It is one of the things I love the most about Christianity. I think it's one of the things that the world hates the most about Christianity. Is that it is so simple. You don't have to come up with some crazy equation. It's really, really easy. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We deserve to go to hell and be separated from God. But Christ has come. He has paid for those sins. And we have forgiveness and righteousness through God. Through the work of Jesus, not through me, not through you, not through anything any other person has done, but through Jesus Christ alone. Believe in him and you will be saved, right? There's, there's not a whole lot of explanation that needs to happen. But the world says, yeah, but what do I need to do? I know there's got to be something. There's got to be a trick. There's got to be a catch. There's got to be something. It can't be that easy. Nothing in life is that easy. My dad always told me, nothing in life is free. And in the world, that's, 
basically true, except for the gospel. It stands alone. You have to do nothing but repent and believe. That's it. It's simple, but the world, they hate it. Notice here, too, in verse 23, how is this happening? They will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Now, this is probably no surprise to anybody here, right? That God has the power to do this. He created the entire universe. Of course, he can bring Israel back to a state, a belief. He has the power to graft them back in. There is nothing stopping him from doing this other than his own timing, other than when he decides that he wants to do it, right? We're not there yet, but the rest of chapter 11, we'll look at it, right? The rest of chapter 11 makes it clear that God is going to do this. He's going to graft them back in. Don't think it's happening now. I don't think it's happening today, right? There are lots and lots of Jews. Most, most of Israel still does not believe, but God is going to do it whenever he chooses to do it. So the last thing I would like to say this morning is that we need to remember that God's arm is not too short to save. These Gentiles were grafted onto a tree. What does Paul say in verse 24? It's a beautiful statement. Contrary to nature. That, man, that sums up what it means to go from death to to life, from dark to light. It is contrary to our nature when we are unbelievers to even care about who God is, to seek him, to look to him, to pray to him, to worship him. The un- it is contrary to the nature of the unbeliever. They will never do that. It is the opposite of who they are. And then belief comes in and faith is given and then everything changes. It was contrary to the Gentiles and to their nature. It is contrary to this wild olive shoot to be brought on to a, grafted on to to this olive tree that is representative of God's people. This is not normal, and yet God is doing it because his arm is not too short to save. He has the power to do it. He has the power to do anything and everything that he wants to do. When we were unbelievers, everything that we did was sinful. Everything that we did was contrary. And God says, I will take that and I will make a radical transformation. And that is scary to a lot of people. Because God is saying, your entire life is going to be turned upside down. The people who once used to be your closest friends will probably not be your closest friends anymore. All the things you do, the things and the things that you thought you would never do, like come to church, sing hymns. The unbelieving world, before they're Christians, why would I do that? Why would I ever go and be a part of it? It's contrary to who they are. And yet when we are radically changed, all of these things we thought we would never do, that we thought we would never engage in, these are things that God brings into our life. We find joy in We find life in these things. It's like being a fish out of water, 
But God sustains your life anyway. Everything changes. It's hard to put into words. I don't know that there is an analogy. That, but if you're here this morning and you have experienced that, right? From walking in death into life. From being an unbeliever to a believer, which we all have. If you're a Christian here this morning, you used to be an unbeliever, right? You weren't born Christian. You weren't Christian because your parents were Christian. There was a moment in your life when you went from darkness to light. When this transformation was made. God has done this. For you. And then he says, if it was contrary for nature for the Gentiles to be brought in, how much easier is it for Israel to be brought back? This is what he says in verse 24. How much more will these and natural branches be grafted back into their own, own olive tree? The message is simple. God is not done with Israel yet. Now, this is the warning I want to give you. He's not done with them. The rest of the chapter makes it clear that he's going to bring them back. But when he does it and how he does it is up to him. You and I are not going to figure that one out. But there are lots and lots and lots of people who write books. Some I mean, I remember growing up, um, he was a little before my time and then during my, but Hal Lindsey, right? He would write these books. He's looking at the numbers. He's predicting when it's going to happen. It's going to happen on this day, right? Jesus is coming back because look what's happening with Israel. And look at, and we're, we're like trying to piece all these things together. And there's numbers in the Bible and now there's numbers in front of me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure this out, right? It's a puzzle. And if I'm just smart enough and if I've got all the pieces and I can look at them, I'm going to be able to make a, a picture, I'm not telling you that you shouldn't, if that, if that kind of stuff is interesting to you, to read it. And, to, you know, I think Paul Hagee is like sort of a modern day guy who's doing this. He's predicting the returning of Jesus all the time. Every time he's on TV, it's like, well, I missed it last time. But now this, I mean, come on. Like, it's, to me, it's silly. But I know people who genuinely, it's like, yeah, this is interesting to me. But here's the thing. God's going to do it when he's going to do it. If you want to read about it, that's great. But don't fall into that rabbit hole. Because I meet a lot of people. Christian people who I have, you know, for my job. And I meet them at the hospital. Or I meet them at home. And they are completely consumed by this. To the point that they forgot what their calling is as a Christian. The last words that Jesus speaks to the disciples. Those have got to be some of the most important things that he tells them, right? He knows he's about to ascend into heaven and not see them again. Did he say, and now let's get our, let's get our calculators out and figure out when the end of the world is coming? No. He says, go make disciples. You see, God's not done with Israel, and it's not your job, and it's not my job to try and figure out what he's going to do and when he's going to do it. Your job, my job, the job of this church, go make disciples. Go preach the gospel to the unbelieving world, to the branches that have been cut off, to the groups who say, we, but we're atheists, or we're this, or we're that. Go preach the gospel to them. Because let me just tell you, what if... What if you got it all, right? What if you had all the pieces and you find out that six months from now is going to be the end of the world and you're sure of it? What would you do? 
you would go and preach the gospel. All of those people whom you know who are unbelievers, you'd be like, man, they only have six months until Jesus comes back. I need to go share the gospel with them. Just act like six months from now the world is going to end. Or just act like you're not promised tomorrow because you're not. Go preach the gospel. Don't get bogged down with this. Please, it will consume every part of you. Instead of worrying about what God is doing in his secret will, whenever he's going to do it, go and preach the gospel. Make disciples of your neighborhood, of your workplace, children of your school. Go and preach the gospel. Amen? That is our calling. That is what God wants us to do. I'm totally, be interested in these things. Read it on the side. But don't let it ever usurp your calling. To make disciples of the nations. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Father, help us to see the things, your knowledge and your ways that are unknown to us. Help us to stay focused on the mission that you have for us. God, we are grateful that you are not done with Israel. We long for the day when, when the nation as a whole becomes believers again and they are brought back in. And what a glorious day that will be. I, I pray that we get to see that in our lifetime. I don't know if we will. I don't know if that's going to happen in five years or 5,000 years. I have no idea. You know and we leave that to you. Father, help us. In the meantime, with what we have and the spheres of influence that each one of us have, the people that we work with, the neighbors that we have, the people that we know in our family who don't believe in you, God, convict us, encourage us, give us the boldness to go and preach the gospel to those people that they would no longer exist in unbelief, but that they would believe in you, repent, and be saved. Father, this is what we are called to do. Help us to do it. Father, we are fearful of this. We are fearful of rejection. We're fearful of not knowing what to say. Evangelism is a scary thing for most of us in this room. I pray that you give us courage. I pray that you give us boldness to do it anyway. You did things that were scary. You did things that were uncomfortable for you. Let us not shy away from the things that are uncomfortable for us. Let us go into this world and be a light for you to everyone that we meet. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.